This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you are an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests, and share their wisdom. And we will all have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And I will now serenade you with a song. Why are you cutting me off? What? The Welcome Home podcast is not legal advice, but it is awesome advice. Should you develop diarrhea, vomiting, or breathing complications, please consult your doctor. Today on Welcome Home, we are discussing inadmissibility with Raj Sharma. Raj, the Rajinator, Rajarella, Rajalamovich. We are going to be talking about the Sidhu case, which has been in the media, and how to manage inadmissibility cases in general. We will also have a segment on things I wish I knew when I started to practice in this unique area of law. Hello and welcome listeners. Today we have one of the co-authors of Inadmissibility and Remedies joining us. Thank you for joining us, Raj Sharma. Please tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, Catherine, Chantal, thanks for having me on. Um, I am an immigration lawyer. I'm based out of Calgary, Alberta. I've been practicing immigration law for, I guess, 17 years. Um, Prior to that, I was a refugee protection officer with the Immigration Refugee Board. Um, and it's, uh, it's good. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to join you today. Thank you so much for giving up your time. We know that, uh, you're a very, very busy practitioner and you've got an active social media profile as well. I, I love watching your tweets on Twitter. Um, tell us a little bit more about the book that you have that's coming out. I'm interested about that. The book, uh, came out, uh, came about as a result of, uh, you, I guess. So I, I guess I'll have to thank you and and of course, Catherine as well. Um, you had suggested uh, the project, uh, I think more than a year ago. And at that time I was just wondering how I'm going to, you know, I, I don't know whether you guys sleep because you guys are prodigious and prolific. Um, so I was wondering how I was going to handle a book of that magnitude because inadmissibility is obviously near and dear to my heart. Uh, so inadmissibility, enforcement, deportation, removal, stays. Um, this is something that I've been uh, has been my life's work, I suppose, for over a decade. Um, so you had suggested it. I had some trepidation whether I could deliver. And uh, thankfully, uh, we have a brilliant co-author, R.S. Degudian. So uh, R.S. Uh, came on board, and we were able to shepherd this, obviously, with your both of your brilliant assistants uh, into fruition. Begging also, I think, maybe helped a little bit in there when we were begging you guys to <laughs> write, please, please, ours, please, Raj, come on. <laughs> you know, the, it's interesting. Obviously, it's my first time. We write, we speak on this issue. It's, it's a profession, it's a calling. And so, um, but once you put pen to paper, once you have once you write something and you try to express it and try to explain it to someone else, it, it does resonate as well. So it, it, it's one of those things that I think was uh, something that I'm very grateful for. And 
oddly enough, I think uh, the pandemic uh, assisted in the writing of the book. Normally, I'm doing dozens of hearings a year, much like yourselves. And, and so I was wondering how uh, we could produce uh, this gargantuan or seemingly gargantuan work, but we managed to get it out. And I think uh, those early months of the pandemic really assisted in getting the, the raw uh, work out. And it's an important textbook because I find this is an area of law where practitioners can really get it wrong and then that's it, game over. Now, you mentioned that inadmissibility was kind of near and dear to your heart. Why is that? It's, uh, it's, it, I get, I think it's complicated. I think, uh, you know, in terms of personal history or um, my own family's history, um, there's, there's always two sides to immigration. One is, of course, settlement, which is everyone is, you qualify, you're eligible, and you get status in Canada. But there's obviously the other side of the equation, the other side of the coin, which is there's individuals that once they're here or trying to get here, but there's an impediment. And that impediment or that hurdle is, uh, you know, that's where things get complex. This is now we're moving beyond checklist. Now we're moving beyond simple eligibility. Now we're into the realm of discretion. And, and how do you explain discretion to a non-lawyer, for example, which is an officer could choose to do um, or make a decision which is justifiable or reasonable in the circumstances. It could be a yes or it could be a no. Um, so I think inadmissibility or ineligibility or removal is, is a huge part of what we do. Um, so settlement is only half of the equation and, and whether this is hubris or my personal opinion, but um, I think you separate, let's say, the, the men from the boys and the women from the girls and the practitioner from the dabbler once you get into the labyrinth or the maze of inadmissibility. These are big concepts. There's terms of art. There's uh, jurisprudence. There's a brilliant jurist uh, expounding on uh, the statutory and regulatory regime. So it's a lot of moving parts, and it's been very, very challenging, and, but at the same time, very, very rewarding as well. So when you can shepherd someone, when you can assist someone navigating this complex regime, um, it is, of course, at the same time challenging, sometimes dispiriting, but always rewarding. And it's such a complicated area, and I think you really hit the nail on the head in the sense that like, a lot of practitioners shy away from that type of work because, A, it's quite complicated and it's difficult to be good at it, frankly. It's, it's you know, more than paper pushing. It's a, a lot of persuasive advocacy and having to be good on your feet, but also because the stakes are so high and it's difficult work. I mean, when you lose, it's just, it's so devastating. I mean, how do you manage that emotional aspect of being involved in so much inadmissibility work? Every file is a life. So everything that you touch, for example, has massive consequences. So you could have um, a refusal on quotidian or normal reason. You could have a visitor visa application. There could be um, insufficiency of evidence, and you have a refusal that doesn't doesn't have any prejudice for any future application. Inadmissibility, you make a mistake, there are going to be consequences, or you could have um, repercussions that ripple for many, many years, if not a lifetime. 
So these are difficult. And of course, every immigration practitioner realizes this. And so we must tread uh, with caution. We have to look before we leap. Um, you know, philosophy helps, I suppose. I, I, you know, the, the Bhagavad Gita uh, tradition is good, which is you you do your work, you do your best, and then you step back. There's the, there's the Tao Te Ching. There's, uh, so you're a little bit on the side of a, a surgeon, let's say, which is you can't get, let's say, too emotionally invested, but without emotional investment or without passion, you cannot be a, a proper advocate. So these things are always uh, difficult. We all have those cases where we wish we could have won that one case. So we've won a case, one case on these facts and then lost another case on very similar facts. Um, so it, it is very, very challenging. And so, but, you know, in terms of a life or a legacy or, or a practice, uh, you would want something, in my opinion, anyway, that the difficulties awake the genius. You want something that's challenging. How, how do you, again, kind of off of what Chantal was saying, emotional sometimes those cases can really weigh heavily. Like I had one DUI case where the individual uh, hit his best friend's car and had three children in the back seat, and it went up in flames. And, you know, I'm reading all the criminal information on that and all the details. And that's a lot emotionally. How do you cope with that? What kind of things do you do to help you manage your emotions to make sure you stay on point? I think individuals contain multitudes. Um, does, does one act define you for a lifetime? Uh, perhaps, perhaps it does, perhaps it doesn't. And so um, the only thing you can do is if you choose to take on this challenge of assisting individuals uh, and, and helping them navigate this labyrinth, then you have to sort of um, give your best. And so you're going to then take perhaps some uh, objective view, but you have to understand the, the, the circumstances that brought that individual to that point of inadmissibility. And you would have to then explain all of that life and of course the consequences of the grant of relief, for example, or remedy or non-action, non-enforcement to an officer as well. And, and the officer, of course, is a, is a human being as well. And, and so we're, we're now back to, again, these, these classical philosophical concepts from uh, the ancient Greeks, uh, you know, pathos and, and, and logos. And, and, and so, you know, at the same time, you combine um, argument or logic with an emotional appeal. It, it's also, I think, especially when it comes to criminal inadmissibility, it's a very polarizing issue. Um, people who have never really had any contact or experience with the immigration system, it's easy to have a knee-jerk reaction. And, you know, there have been, you know, cases all throughout my career, and I'm sure through yours as well, where, you know, it hits the media and people are very, very quick to judge somebody based on an action at a specific point in life, right? Like I'm thinking of Mr. Sidhu, who was driving the um, the truck that hit the Humboldt Broncos bus. Uh, all of that is very much in the news right now as he 
sort of makes his way through the court system and the immigration system. And I, I, I wonder what your thoughts are around that. This is one of the challenging aspects of inadmissibility or practicing in, in, in the sphere of inadmissibility law and remedies, which is this intersection between immigration law, which is nominally or, or presumably administrative in, in, in aspect, and then of course the intersection with criminal law, whether in Canada or outside of Canada. So we are going to judge an individual's actions or culpability or, or uh, or criminality or alleged criminality committed outside Canada that has to be equivalent to an offense inside Canada. And then, of course, uh, conviction inside Canada, which is what Mr. Sidhu is. Um, that's a that's the situation that he's in. And, and Mr. Sidhu is is um, is a great example of that intersection between immigration law, administrative our administrative powers and, of course, the criminal laws. And so this is an aspect of, let's say, double jeopardy. Traditionally, for hundreds of years, our concepts of criminal law is that we are not going to punish someone twice for the same crime. But immigration is one of those aspects where you do get double jeopardy, where you will, let's say, get convicted of a crime in Canada, you will serve your time in Canada, you will be punished in Canada, but you will also face the jeopardy of exile, banishment from Canada, a, a, another punishment. And, and again, it, historically, uh, exiling someone or banishing someone was the one of the highest um, punishments you could give to someone who's committed uh, or breached the norms of society. Yeah, and I, um, I read a really good article recently, I think it might have been in McLean's magazine, about um, the different family members of the players who had, who had lost their kids in the accident. And... Um, you know, some of them being able to forgive and others not being able to forgive. And I see that as like, if you look at that in the immigration context, you do see people falling into two broad categories, right? There are the people who will say, no, this is a black and white issue. It is one strike, you're out. Uh, you do something like that. You're not a Canadian citizen. You have to be deported. And then there are other people that look at it a different way and through a, a sort of a more, what I would say, a holistic lens of seeing the whole person as opposed to, as opposed to just that one act. And I, I just thought it was a very in, insightful article. Mr. Sidhu, and, and I've met Mr. Sidhu in an in a informal setting, um, friends of friends, let's say. And he struck me as a very honorable individual. And, and I think Mr. Sidhu, um, as the article indicates, makes an inadequate billet. Um, Mr. Sidhu took responsibility, pled guilty. Of course, his, uh, his oversight, his, his negligence resulted in the death of 16 individuals and horrific injuries to 13 more, impacts of perhaps dozens or hundreds of family members including himself and, and his own wife, uh, who's, who's a permanent resident at the near here in Calgary. Um, this is a, it's a complex case, and I have a great deal of sympathy for Mr. Sidhu, and, and, um, and part of that is because of that, his honorable sort of demeanor or his acceptance of responsibility, and um, it, he could have fought the charges. He had a he had a he had a basis to contest the the charges against him. Um, but that case then now exemplifies and part of 
this sort of complex regime, these moving parts that we're talking about. So again, so let's say you have someone that immigrated to Canada at two or three or four or five years of age. For all intents and purposes, they're Canadian. And so that individual commits a crime and faces immigration jeopardy, that is banishment, exile, deportation from Canada. Someone that's born in Canada, such as myself, for example, commits the exact same crime, will serve the time just as the other individual, but will never face potential removal. And again, some of these individuals are facing removal to countries that they have no recollection of. So this case is, uh, exemplifies that double jeopardy aspect. At the same time, the case also shows, and, and I've, I've, I've heard whether it's immigration practitioners, whether it's consultants or lawyers, I've heard these individuals say, well, if you get convicted of a crime in Canada and you get sentenced to this length of sentence, there is no hope you will get deported. And, and that's simply not the case. So one of the important messages that, uh, that are in our book, it's a standalone, it's a, it's a chapter uh, that R. Stegigian and I wrote was that, you know, the inadmissibility is not necessarily or enforcement action or potential enforcement action is not necessarily the end of the road uh, for your journey in Canada. There is discretion that remains in the system. And that's where Mr. Sidhu is right now. He's pled guilty. He's a permanent resident of Canada. He's pled guilty to a crime that carries with it and, and was sentenced to eight years incarceration. Normally under section 36, that means that removal is in the cards, but there is some scope of discretion under section 44, an officer may choose not to proceed with enforcement. And, and, and this is, it, it's going to be very, very interesting because there's, there's so many, you know, that officer is part of this community as well. That officer presumably is driving on these highways and roads, just like you and I are. And, and so that officer is going to be confronted with a decision, which is what do I do at this point with a remorseful individual, with an individual that all evidence indicates is, is not a risk. Um, if we were to, if you were to stay in Canada, it would not be a risk to the safety of Canadians. Um, and and did the and did the broader system let Mr. Sidhu down? I.e., we allow individuals with, and, and it depends on the province, but we allow individuals with a few dozen hours, let's say thirty hours back in Canada, in Alberta, maybe a hundred hours in some other provinces. We allow individuals with a few dozen hours of training to drive sixty thousand pound missiles. Right. It's interesting that you say that because. We, Chantal and I were talking, what about the employer? Like, do you think that this highlights some, some duties of the employer when, when people are here working, foreign nationals, uh, permanent residents? What role, how, how, do, we, how do we make sure uh, people keep their jobs in a safe and healthy work environment? Yeah, and if I could add to that, I mean, imagine if he hadn't been a permanent resident. Imagine if the employer had sponsored his work permit. Correct. That would be a whole other host and, of issues. And, and we're seeing pushback now. I'm doing a judicial review of work permit refusals of truck drivers from Abu Dhabi, experienced truck drivers, for example. Um, we're seeing pushback after Mr. Sidhu's case. We're seeing a lot more refusals on the grounds of, well, I believe implied refusals on the basis of, of safety. So we are seeing pushback uh, by officers now uh, in light of that case. 
I agree with you completely. Uh, that employer, I believe, is I believe is a distant relation of Mr. Sidhu, but really has dropped off the radar. So, what are the obligations on on employers as well um, that we're employing international students, twenty-one uh, year olds, twenty-two year olds, twenty-three year olds, with limited work experience, let's say, in Canada, um, and and the regulatory regime across Canada, which varies by province. So, you know, Mr. Sidhu uh, case is also a microcosm, but at the same time, it speaks to larger public policy considerations. Absolutely. I also think it highlights, I mean, if he was a temporary worker, it, there would be a full force investigation into this employer. They would be looking at the employer to say, were you compliant? Did you provide proper training for this individual? And might I note, we have a trucking, a shortage of truck drivers in Canada. There's a serious need for truck drivers in Canada. So, you know, what are they doing to set these people up for success? Is it just a driver's license? But if they follow the, the ministry guidelines, as you said, with, you know, 50 hours in one province and 100 in another, or 25 in another province, and then they're good to go, is that enough? I, I don't know. Yeah, certainly, Mr. Mr. Sidhu, you know, was he set up to fail necessarily? I mean, uh, very, very inexperienced, on the job for a few weeks. Um, there's sympathy naturally arises, that, of course, counterbalanced with the fact that uh, we have 16 dead individuals um, and 13 more uh, injured. Yeah, and he ran a stop sign. Like at the end of the day, he knew or ought to have known there's a stop sign. Right, and, and, and that being said, I mean, I've represented individuals that were driving drunk much, much beyond any level and that, you know, uh, permanent residents of Canada, T-bone taxi drivers killed two taxi driver and his passenger. And, and again, same situation as Mr. Sidhu in, in that situation, less media exposure and an officer exercised their discretion not to enforce removal, in that case to Mexico. Um, so this is going to be a very interesting case, which is how does Mr. Sidhu's remorse, apparent non-risk, uh, apparent forgiveness by some family members, how will that play a part? And of course, the media coverage, how will that impact on the discretion that will be exercised in this case um it, you know i don't i don't envy that cbsa officer that that cbsa officer this is probably one of the more um significant decisions that that officer has made but again our officers make and perhaps the layman layperson is not aware of this but we exercise discretion we allow criminals into canada all the time whether it's Conrad Black with a fraud conviction that resulted in five plus years sentence in the United States, we're granting him a temporary resident permit to come to Canada. Um, whether it's stars, media stars, you know, singers, what have you, with significant criminal records in the United States, we allow individuals entry to Canada, notwithstanding prior interactions with uh, the criminal justice. So speaking about Mr. Sidhu's case, 
uh, we have a lot of practitioners listening to us today. What kind of evidence would you put forward or include in this kind of, of appeal mechanism towards the CBSA officer when asking for that discretion? Mr. Sidhu is uh, represented by uh, Michael Green, uh, QC here in Calgary, a very experienced uh, immigration uh, lawyer. Um, Mr. Green is going to put forward his best possible case. That best possible case, just no matter what, is going to indicate Mr. Sidhu's establishment in Canada. Mr. Sidhu entered Canada legally. Mr. Sidhu obtained permanent residency under an economic class. Mr. Sidhu did everything right. Um, he's married. Uh, his wife is obviously, uh, you know, building her life in, 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 in Canada as well. And so you're going to look at that establishment in Canada. You're going to look at those ties to community in Canada. Um, his, his, his journey to Canada, for example. So he did everything right. You're going to explain the, the circumstances leading to that request as to don't write the report. Well, it was one mistake in a young man's life. Now that one mistake had horrific consequences. So you're going to put forward those, those circumstances. So what I would do probably is we would put in those sentencing transcripts. We are going to uh, grab that criminal record, um, whether there's a pre-sentence report, what have you, we're going to grab all of that information, including you know, the pros and the cons, the warts and all, the, the families that have not forgiven him and the families that have. We're going to grab these news articles, um, including the McLean's article or the National Post article. Um, we're going to discuss, you know, in terms of hardship, if he goes back to India, so this is life interrupted. Him and his wife started a life in Canada, um, studied in Canada, graduated successfully in Canada, and and all of a sudden they might have to start all over again in India. So we're going to discuss that hardship. We're going to discuss the remorse um, and the insight that Mr. Sidhu has displayed. Obviously, the the fact that he's no longer a risk. There's going to be submissions, uh, eloquent. This is. This is our task in this field of God. This, this calls for us to be, to bring forth the highest level of advocacy that we can bring to the table, which is, okay, well, this is what's happened. Um, almost like a mini humanitarian and compassionate application, but again, all of the jurisprudence, all of the concepts of rehabilitation, recidivism, all of the concepts surrounding remorse, all of these sort of, um, these concepts that underlie our Judeo-Christian heritage, which is that while punishment, of course, for criminal acts is part and parcel of our, our, of our worldview, but forgiveness is also part and parcel of that. And, and so who deserves forgiveness? And, 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 and how do we determine who is um, deserving of of this discretion or the grant of discretion. And so it, it is very much, and of course, both of you have done this, it is very much a deep dive into the life of this individual. And you're going to inhabit this person's life and you're going to look through their eyes and, and through their position in life and, and explain everything to that officer. And you're gonna put everything in front of that officer. Um, in terms of Mr. Sidhu, there's 
many, many positive considerations for the grant of discretion here. Always counterbalanced with the fact that we have 16 dead, innocent young men and, and of course the coach and, and the driver and, and of course the impact on, on so many different lives. So it, it, it is, uh, it's going to be heartfelt, there's going to be passion, there's, at the same time there's going to be advocacy, there's going to be logic, there's going to be reliance on jurisprudence and, 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 and an appeal to that, to that discretion of that officer. I think also making sure that when the lawyer advocates, they do so in plain language and very clearly, concisely, in a compelling emotional way. I mean, we, we can't get away. This, this situation had catastrophic consequences. We all know that. So I think really the, the job of Michael Green is to make sure, uh, and as we know, he's phenomenal, um, at what he does. So, you know, Mr. Sadu has one of the best of the best. But making sure that, that it's written in such a way that they can see those things that you just laid out. Making sure that the officer, I, I find that's the talent in, in admissibility, is separating that emotional piece somewhat for yourself, adding it into your submissions where needed, but focusing on the law and proving the points that you need to prove to make sure that when that CBSA officer does that wing, they can say, you know, spouse in Canada, life in Canada, criminal free up until this particular point, um, both in, you know, the previous country and the current country. Um, employed. A, as, as close to a 0% chance of recidivism that you could exactly. possibly get. And I agree with you. I think that it's a lot of this is double jeopardy, right? Like when, when is enough enough? If I've served my criminal sentence, because society has said eight years is now the penalty. After that eight years plus however many years of probation, am I done then? Like when, when's enough enough? Well, I would also point out, um, you know, for those who may be listening who have not been in the field very long, that there used to be a full right of appeal for permanent residents. Uh, Like pretty much everyone with a criminal record um, would be able to have a right of appeal where that those discretionary factors would be fully litigated. And that would that was changed in the law some time ago to become pretty strict. I mean, it's almost like a one strike you're out policy absent the discretion in the section 44 report. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So Prior to IRPA, you had the ability for a permanent resident to challenge almost any ground of inadmissibility or criminal uh, inadmissibility. IRPA brought in that two years less a day uh, threshold. We had the the Balanced Refugee Reform Act or the, sorry, the the euphemistically entitled Faster Removal of Foreign Criminals Act brought in some years ago, which brought in this um, six month, uh, less than six month sort of uh, threshold and it was a threshold that didn't take into account the the nature of the crime itself. It was it was strictly based on the sentence imposed. And it's interesting because I know we're we're specifically talking about Section Thirty Six, but organized criminality as well is very broad. I mean, I had a client who uh, came to Canada at the age of three. It was that client got PR, never got citizenship. 
literally had a tattoo of a particular biker gang on their shoulder. And out they go 40 years later. No criminal history at all. Nothing. But because of that tattoo, uh, immigration said, we think you fall within the scope of organized criminality. And I mean, that's that's quite shocking to me. Um, section Section thirty seven is 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 going to be a favorite, I think, of uh, CBSA for a long time because Section thirty seven removes whatever fetters one has under Section thirty six. Exactly, we, we simply don't have that in thirty seven. So you, you membership is broadly defined, organization is somewhat broadly defined. Um, you don't need a conviction, and 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 isn't that scary? You, you don't even need to show an actual crime. You just Correct. have to show an involvement with the organization. Right. So, you know, we have, of course, and we've dealt with this case in this office as well, which the, the Sonny Wang uh, case, like, you know, Sonny Wang, of course, the, the sort of mastermind behind this immigration fraud gets conviction and sentence in Canada and is not facing deportation. But his secretaries, his assistants, uh, who are permanent residents are uh, facing removal under 37 of the act with no conviction, no charges, no conviction. So um, a definite uphill battle section. One of the things that I'm most proud of, of this book with Aris is that we've given a very, very fulsome treatment of 37, which I believe is going to uh, play a larger and larger role because 37 frees the CBSA officers, enforcement officers, from the confines of that criminal code. We don't need that intersection, i.e. vis-a-vis a conviction under the criminal code of Canada. What we need is some allegations and we need some sort of uh, action or, uh, or participation in some sort of broader uh, organization of three or more individuals. So 37 is going to be uh, heavily litigated. And again, our office uh, dealt with that, my partner Bjorn Hershani, um, dealt with that recently, Lopez Gaten, uh, that case went to the Federal Court of Appeal. That was on the issue of duress. Um, but it's it's a very exciting area of law. There's always, there's going to be, develop- immigration in general changes almost day by day. Inadmissibility law, again, um, very, very interesting. And the jurisprudence is changing uh, on a regular basis. I think it also tests your research skills of looking at other other pieces of law trying to get a little more creative foreign law oh foreign foreign law. Law. you're gonna be you're gonna be tasked with like you know reading the you know the prc people's republic of china <laughs> law on fraud and trying to see how they're making it equivalent to fraud in canada when fraud in china and literally the words are especially large amounts could result <laughs> in the death penalty so um Again, but a very challenging area of law because the jurisprudence is is usually against us. There's, you know, if we look at misrepresentation, if we look at, um, you know, we, we don't get a lot of wiggle room uh, in terms of either the, the statute or the jurisprudence that's emanated from that stat- statute. So if you could give our, our listeners any helpful hints with respect to inadmissibility, what would it be? By the book. <laughs> we love it. We love it. Great advice. <laughs> what would be your second piece of advice, Raj? Besides, you know, buy the book. I think I you think, almost made me spit out my wine. You, know, 
if she was drinking wine, of course. Yeah, yeah allegedly. Um, think, allegedly. I think that, again, going back to those ancient Greeks, is that uh, the first step is to know yourself. If you're interested in uh, that area of law, that intersection of criminal law and immigration law, then um, then you, we can develop these uh, down this path. So, uh, you know, I article with the Federal Department of Justice and, and my partner, uh, law partner Bjorn was with uh, a leading criminal law firm in Edmonton. So um, if you're interested in this sort of complex area of law, then you can develop this. But again, I think you, this is where, again, relying on CSC's website is simply not going to be enough to practice in this area of immigration. This is the area of law where you will reach out to the leading lights of the bar and we all know who they are. So you're gonna reach out to these leading lights. You're gonna do your research as Catherine said, you're gonna have some sort of grounding in criminal law anyway, probably, or a deep interest in criminal law so that you can bring those same concepts, that pure law that criminal lawyers bring, you're gonna bring that same insight and, and passion and into here. You're going to question everything. This is not an area where, well, an officer says it's so, therefore it must be the case. Like here you're gonna question everything you're gonna, is this evidence? Is this an inference? Is this speculation? Is this whatever? So you really, first of all, figure out whether you've got this aptitude or this grounding and this interest and desire. If you do, then you're going to have to develop this um, and this, almost adversarial nature uh, against immigration because you're going to question everything. You're going to challenge everything. You're going to, uh, like Catherine said, you're going to have good research skills. You're going to have a firm grounding in that jurisprudence. You're going to have to, you're going to have to have a desire to have reported decisions. You're going to have to get into that fray, enter that forum and, 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 and duke it out with DOJ, the Fed DOJ in terms of federal court or um, or, or other, or the Immigration Refugee Board. And, and so you have to have a very, very solid litigation grounding or a desire to become a litigator. And, and really, there's a, in the UK, there's a difference between solicitors and, and, and barristers. And, and truly, there's a difference in the immigration bar as well. Either you're going to be a solicitor and you're going to get those applications in, um, or you're going to be a litigator. And, and very few sort of very few individuals sort of have a, a huge overlap. Um, if you do, if you're not in that world, you identify an issue early on, refer that out, unless you want to flirt with allegations of incompetence or conduct uh, in breach of professional uh, requirements or ethics, refer that out, get specialists on board, get criminal defense lawyers on board, get appellate, criminal appellate lawyers on board, get immigration litigators on board. So um, that would be my advice, I suppose. Well, and it's excellent advice. And, and nobody does this better than you, by the way. Uh, you are, when you talk about leading lights, you are definitely one of them. Uh, so we just really want to thank you for your time today. Uh, you spend a lot of time with us. We know you're really busy doing a lot of different things. And uh, we just appreciate it so much. And I know our audience will get a lot out of your tips. Yeah, Chantal, Catherine, uh, 
always a pleasure and I hope to see you soon. Get working on the second edition, Raj. <laughs> Please, I'm, I'm still recovering. I'm still in recovery. Get on it. On it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Raj. What's your area of focus? Refugee claims? Family class sponsorship? Temporary work authorizations? No, I tend to focus on red wine and broken dreams. Find all you need to know with Iman Publishing's Immigration Law Series, supported by general editors Catherine Sawicki and Chantal Delage. Never heard of them. Iman's Practical and Contemporary Series offers clear, concise, and balanced guidance on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Learn more at emond.ca forward slash ILS. This segment is called Things I Wish I Knew. Chantal, when you were starting out as an immigration practitioner, what do you wish someone had told you? I think it would have to be that in law, as in other areas of life, relationships are everything. Your knowledge and your skill will get you to a certain point, uh, but relationships with other human beings in your field sometimes will get you places where you never imagined you really could go. Um, and when I say relationships, I don't only mean like mentorship relationships where, you know, other people who do the same kind of work that you do. I mean, with your colleagues, with your staff, with your clients, with your opponents, those are very important relationships too. And in a professional environment, it's, it's super important for us to remember that while we may be on opposite sides of a case, that doesn't stop us from being friendly to each other outside the courtroom. Uh, and I, I can't tell you how many number of how many times I've been in a jam where I've realized that I maybe missed a deadline by one day or something and needed to call up uh, a CBSA officer or a Department of Justice lawyer and say, look, you know, I'll be honest with you, I screwed up, I missed it by a day. Would you consider consenting to an extension of time or not objecting to my late document? And they're going to say yes or no to that. Of course, if they have contrary instructions from their client, it's different. But to a large degree, that will be based on the trust relationship that you have with them on an ongoing basis. Because you know what? Six months ago, they were in the same situation and you extended the same the same courtesy to them. And, and you know, if they can see that you're honest and forthright and a good person, they're more likely to be helpful to you in a general way. So I, I, I think the final thing I would say about that is don't forget about the relationships with the people that you hardly notice as you go along, like the registry officer at the um, Immigration Airport. Appeal Division, yeah. um, like the person who makes the photocopies in the whatever office. Like those people are just as important as the decision makers. They're just as worthy of respect. And you know, those people who are doing those administrative duties actually have a lot of power in some ways. You know, they're the person that can, you know, like if they're about to close the office in five minutes, they could either shut the door in your face and your filing is late, or they could stay open for a few extra minutes to allow you to get your stuff in under the wire. So I'd say relationships are everything. Never forget that. It feeds into your reputation. Yeah. And that, that point blends well with mine, which is entrepreneurship, which is a lot about relationships as well. Um, you know, we come out of law school and we're, you know, we, we do law. So the clients come through the door magically somehow. 
and we assist them, we, we file the applications, the court case, et cetera. And then you reach a point in your career where you need to bring in the business. And you kind of sit back and say, wait a minute, I was taught how to be a lawyer and to do law, not how to create business. And those relationships really play into creating business and, and bringing in good quality business and getting referrals. So I think, um, you know, learn how to be an entrepreneur, create those relationships, make sure you get out and network because you have to make sure that you, you know, have a client base. And um, I wish someone had told me more about various entrepreneurial skills. That's definitely something I wish, wish I knew. Yeah, I'd, I could add to that, that, um, you know, especially in the early stages of your career, it's really important to get yourself out there and to, you know, if go to every church basement and every community dinner and just get yourself out there and make sure that people know you. Because later in your career, once you have your client base built up, the referrals will sort of come naturally. They will. Right? Because it, you, your best advertisement is to just do a really good job for somebody and they're going to send 10 of their friends. But at the beginning, you don't have that. And, and I do think that when you're respectful and you do the best job that you can do, whether you win or you lose, a lot of times people will refer other people. And there's nothing better than, you know, having someone walk in saying, well, you know, you, you didn't help this person out, but they said that you were so fantastic and you tried, you know, very passionately to fight for them. And even though you lost, you really believed in them. And here I am. And I choose you to be my lawyer. I think that's great. But, you know, I think entrepreneur skills also is about business. How do I structure the business? How do I, you know, what kind of accounting software should I have? What are the best practices? Those types of things. Um, I wish someone had given me some helpful hints and suggestions around those as well. Things I wish I knew. Are you an immigration practitioner working on cases involving temporary residency and work permit applications? Hmm? Stay prepared with Iman Publishing's Temporary Entry into the Canadian Labor Market by Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, Christina Guida, and Peter Salerno. This handbook will guide you through the avenues and implication of a foreign worker's temporary entry into Canada from applications for work authorizations all the way through to employer compliance and inspections. Get your copy today. Visit eman.ca forward slash T-E-C-L-M and enter promo code T-E-C-L-M 10 for 10% off. Do it now. I would like to thank Raj Sharma, aka The Rajinator, for joining us today. Your commentary is very insightful and witty. Until next time, <laughs> you've overstayed your welcome, people. So, abiento. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Dana Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925, extension 227. 
My name is Danan Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Iman Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content, including our immigration law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. EMOND is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.